call revival traditionally. We know that we can't work up a revival. We can't bring revival. We can't schedule a preacher who will pack it up and bring it with him. But we can cry out and ask God to do a fresh work in all of our hearts, and that's what we've done. And so because our church is studying through the Bible chronologically in 2019, and we are at this period of time uh, where Isaiah began his prophecy, then we're looking from Isaiah at some heart cries for revival. Some things that are there where the people were longing for a different day, as maybe we are today, where culture was hard, where life around them was difficult. And so we're looking together at these heart cries for revival. Let me kind of take you back as we consider God's people and, and how what Isaiah says, really these prayers point toward a glorious future. There have been four or five things we've already done on Sundays and Wednesdays, and so you can read them with me. So far, here are the prayers that we've prayed. Read it with me. Oh God, restore our vision of your awesomeness. If you remember, I tried to tell you that, that when we go to the mall and we say, oh, those shoes are awesome, or that meal was awesome. No, they're shoes, and that's a meal. God alone is awesome. He alone is worthy of our prayers. And then we asked this a couple of weeks ago. Help me with it. Oh God, restore our faith. And then we said this together, oh God, restore our joy. And then last Wednesday, we focused in on this. We said, oh God, would you restore prayer? Would you restore prayer? Would you lead us to a place of prayer? Well, today, Isaiah is going to lead us in a pretty amazing cry to the Lord. And so I want us to look together at the notion of God restoring worship. And actually, I've got this sort of divided out as two parts, worship and missions, because they are so closely aligned. When God restores worship, mission flows out of it. When God restores a glimpse of who He is, this prayer is incredibly unique because I would say it this way, restored worship will fundamentally change a church. And we're going to talk about worship for a few minutes this morning. It has very, very little to do with what sometimes we have relegated as the whole of worship. It has very little to do with just a song service before we have a, a preaching event. It has very little to do with a preaching event. Worship is a lifestyle, and it goes far, far beyond just what we do here on Sunday mornings. And so as we begin to look at worship from this Old Testament prophet, I think we're going to see some things that are timely. In fact, I want to really quickly speak to all of our students. If you're a college student at William Carey or you're at Southern Miss or maybe you're one of our high school students or middle schoolers, I really want you to dial in with me this morning because I believe there's some things that God wants to say to this coming generation about a restoration of worship and mission. And it's not lost on me at all as I was typing everything up early in the week when George Ross called me and I knew that you guys were coming, that God was going to speak something to our hearts about the call to the global mission of God. And so I want you guys to dial in with me this morning. That doesn't give anybody an exemption. I want everybody here as believers, as followers of Christ, or maybe those this morning that are far from God. You've not crossed the line of faith. I really want you to hear from the words of Isaiah a desire that God has for all of us, and we'll see these things together. Isaiah 66, we're going to look at verse 18 and 19 sort of as a summary instead of trying to read the entirety of this passage. And I want to invite you to do one more thing, if you wouldn't mind. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Here through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the prophet Isaiah writes, I can see what they are doing, and I know what they are thinking. 
So I will gather all nations and peoples together, and they will see my glory. I will perform a sign among them, and I will send those who survive to be messengers to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians who are famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to all the lands beyond the sea that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. There they will declare my, declare my glory to the nations. They will bring the remnant of your people back from every nation. They will bring them to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you give to us understanding? Would you help us to glean from this truth a powerful encounter with you that would revive us, that would lead us toward a fresh encounter of your presence? Lord, I pray that worship today would inspire us and it would fire missional, obedient living in our lives. God, work in our hearts and our minds and our lives today through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, and may God add blessing and understanding to the reading of His Word. Here we see really two parts, very simply in two verses. God gathers a community of people who see His glory. That really could be a definition of worship. And then He sends out people from this community, uh, and they proclaim His glory, and that's mission. I would say it this way, worship inspires and fires mission. It, it, it engages mission. Once we have seen the glory of God, it inspires us to live and share on mission. It, it inspires us to move beyond our own comfort, our own agenda, our own desire, and moves us to a place where we say, yes, Lord, I will do what you ask of me. When we've tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, our desire is that we want all the families of the earth included. And so I would say this, restoration of worship and mission go hand in hand. It's a mark of genuine revival. So as we pray for it, many people have asked, Pastor, you, you said you want us to pray for these 40 days and you want us to seek God in revival. What does that really look like? Well, I can't give a full description. I just know this. When God moves, we see all throughout Scripture glimpses of it. And one of those things that is restored is a sense of the glory of God, that people see it. And then they respond to it. So if God's going to bring revival into your life or into your family or into your home, then there's going to be a renewed sense of you seeing the glory of God, seeing God for who He really is, and then responding to Him in obedience. That may be for the very first time. Maybe you're lost here today. You've never had an encounter with God, and you trust Him, and He begins to bring life into your heart. He resurrects you from death to life and gives you eternal life, forgives your sin, and all of a sudden, with this renewed perspective of how good He is to you, you begin to respond to Him in obedience. That is a sense of the restoration we're crying out for. We're saying, oh God, would you restore worship? In 1792, William Carey blazed the trail to India. And going there, he saw his mission as a miner that would penetrate deep into a mine that had never been explored before and no one to guide him. He was with a man named Andrew Fuller and another named John Ryland. They were pastor friends. And he said these words, powerful quote many of you know, I will go down if you will hold the rope. 
There's a sense where we understand that sending people to East Asia, sending people out west to do our preacher schools, sending people to work with church plants in New Orleans or in Indiana or in Mongolia, it doesn't matter where we begin to work and serve and reach. We have partnership with many, many places because missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Jesus is not private. The joy of knowing Jesus is not tribal. The joy of knowing Jesus is not national or ethnic. It belongs to all people. It is not a privilege for some. It is extended to the nations, and that's why we go. I'll say it again. Because we've tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, we want everyone else included in it. And Isaiah knew that. Isaiah knew it from his own experience. Maybe you remember early on in his life, he had known God for some time, and yet he went to the temple, and he was there in this place of worship, and he said, there I saw the Lord. It's Isaiah 6, if you want to jot it down and go back and read it later. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the glory of the Lord was shining around him, and the place was shaken in his midst as he saw the seraphim crying out to one another, attending to the holiness of God, as they said to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the, the amazing thought to me that grips me often is that those angels that were attending to God's glory 700 years before Jesus uh, emerges on the scene in Isaiah's day are still to this day attending to the glory of God even this morning. Why? Because the glory of God is inexhaustible. And He is holy, and He is infinitely worthy of all of our praise. Now, as we begin to think about that, Isaiah responded after that encounter by saying, Here am I, help me out, what are the next two words? Send me. Lord, I'll go. I'll go. Because the Lord asked the question, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah moved from a place of worship to a place of mission. You see how that goes together. When worship is restored, mission will be restored as well. And now we come to the end of his prophecy and we begin to see a mandate for the church. First, God gathers a community and then he scatters or sends them out for them to proclaim his glory. Let me say it this way. Those who see Christ's glory are compelled to share Christ's glory. You can't keep it in. Found people find people. When you have tasted the goodness of God, when you have experienced the grace of God, how many of you can go back to those early moments of your salvation, those early days, and you began to think of how your life could have been otherwise, but God touched you by His grace, and He saved you, and all of a sudden you just wanted the whole world to know, and yet we find ourselves at times waning in our zeal to tell others. Why? Because we've lost our perspective of the glory of God. Those who see the glory of God want to share the glory of God. And I would say it this way, for you and me, that is revival. That if we would cry out, God, we need a fresh vision of your glory. Help us to worship. Would you restore worship so that mission will be restored? Am I speaking to anybody this morning? Does that make sense? I just want to make sure you're tracking along with me. Now, as we move forward from this pattern, I want you to hear this. It's, it's true individually, but it's also a mark or a measure of health in the church. I would say it this way. A worshiping church is a missionary church. A worshiping church is a missionary church, and they increasingly become more missional. Isaiah's experience at the beginning becomes his theme at the end. 
If you want to evaluate a church's worship, don't evaluate it by style. Don't evaluate it just by the experience of music. Don't evaluate it by the preaching. Evaluate it by the obedience that flows from the experiences of corporate gathering. A missionary church is a worshiping church. And if you want to see a church that's faltering in worship, look at a church that's faltering in mission. I want to tell you, if you're new here today, if you're at Hardy Street, I, I just want to tell you that one of our greatest desires and our greatest joys is to be a missional church, a sending church. We invest a large portion. If you've given this morning, as we already have, if you gave anything, you are invested in the global enterprise of God. We support at Southern Baptist 8,800 missionaries that are serving all around the globe. We have a, a Go Center right back behind this wall, and you'll see our partnerships from New Orleans to Indianapolis to Idaho to Montana to Mongolia to India to Nepal. All around the globe, we have missionary partnerships in places like Russia and in Sri Lanka. We have connected with missionary partners all around the globe, personally and through our networking at Southern Baptist. We are committed. That doesn't count the work of our pastors, but that's just those missionary partnerships we are and forever will be a missionary church that's a good place to say amen and yes <laughs> because our desire is that we would follow the heartbeat of God and that flows from our worship it flows from God restoring our worship if you want to evaluate this church's worship then you begin to look at the investment we are deeply committed to those things but let's talk about it for a few minutes I really want to invest some time talking about worship because as we look at this passage, I think there's some things that we can glean. Worship is hard to define and sometimes we, we talk about just a gathering on Sunday morning and we say we're going to gather for worship. Well, it's more than that. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you some thoughts about worship here this morning. Number one, I want you to see this, that seeing Christ's glory is the heart of worship. Seeing Christ's glory is the heart of worship. Let me just set your mind at ease because I, I really believe if we're going to talk about the global enterprise of God and we're going to talk about worshiping God, Satan's going to do everything he can to distract us. We have a security team in place that's monitoring any weather movement. If there's anything that needs to happen, I want to set your I really do. I want to set your mind at ease because I know there's a thousand phones that will go off in this place. And, and you, you need to know that they would come in and tell us. We've instructed them to do so. So can we just focus on the Lord for a few minutes? Seeing Christ's glory is the heart of worship. God says here in verse 18, I will gather a people and they will see my glory. And let me tell you what's happening here. The Lord is speaking about what will happen in the very end. In Revelation 21, we have a picture of all of God's people gathered around. There's the verse. Let's read it together. I will gather all nations and people together and they will see my glory. Listen, church, I want you to hear this. Isaiah, 2,700 years before now, is telling us that there is coming a day, and God gave him a clear picture of it, where people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation are gathered around the throne, and they're seeing clearly the glory of Jesus. And he's saying to them, that's what worship really looks like. Worship's not worrying about what's for lunch or what's going on in the weather outside. It, it is a consuming picture. God, you showed up. And because you are in our midst, we are forever changed. 
And seeing his glory is the heart of worship. You know, some people say, well, are we just, if we're going to worship in heaven forever, that sounds boring. If it's a lot like a long extended church service, I don't know that that's anything I want to experience. Let me help you see this. For all eternity, everything that you discover and everything you accomplish and everything you enjoy will give you fresh glimpses of the glory of Jesus. One commentator said this, you will never get used to him and you'll never tire of him. His truth will keep expanding your mind for all eternity. His love will keep filling your heart for all eternity. His beauty will keep firing your imagination for all eternity. And His purpose will keep directing your will. And after a million ages in heaven, you will only have begun to grasp the beginning of His glory. That's why life in heaven will never be old, will never be dull, will always be fresh and new. Why? Because Christ's glory is inexhaustible and I want you to see this brother West our worship now is a foretaste of our worship then and as as limited as our worship is in this day we only have one tongue and that's why a writer would say oh for a thousand tongues to sing when you get a glimpse of God's glory you say I don't care what's going on externally I simply want to be in the presence of God I want to experience his fullness Think about this. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 writes some amazing things about worship. Some of you say, wait a minute, Pastor. uh, I know you went to seminary. 1 Corinthians 13 is about love. Well, some of you look at 1 Corinthians 13 like Paul went on a little coffee break and said, hey, I've been writing about worship. I've been writing theology, but now let me give you a good little passage you can share at a wedding. I mean, I'll just write that down real quick. But Paul is in an ongoing dialogue about worship. And he says in chapter 12 as he talks about spiritual gifts and he talks about the emphasis and then he moves to 14 and continues theological uh, discussion of worship. Right there in the middle he gives us a framework that love ought to be the driving force of all we do. But he says something unique and I want to put this on the screen. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says this. Read it with me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. You see, worship here is a foretaste of worship in heaven. It's seeing a little bit. And one day we will get the full face-to-face perspective. And many people today, again, associate it just with singing. But every glimpse of the glory of Christ, whether it's in singing or praying or preaching or around the Lord's table, all of those things are in anticipation of the untouched joy that you'll have when you see our Savior. And for you and for me, seeing Christ's glory must be the heart of our worship. I I would say it this way. The heart of our worship is not in what we sing, but in what we see. When we begin to get a glimpse, every service of worship should be like a visit to the Grand Canyon. You know it's big. But you get there and you stand and you gawk and you go, I just can't even remember. I mean, I've got pictures from the last time I was here, but it's just more vast and indescribable than I could possibly share. I mean, you come home on vacation and you say, well, we went to this great big pit. It was a bit, how how do you describe the Grand Canyon? How do you describe the Himalayas? How do you describe the the Hoover Dam, even a man-made thing? Or how do we describe um, Niagara Falls? You, You can't. The perspective is just so grand and so massive and large and that ought to be our experience of worship every time you come to worship you see oh God how deep and wide 
and high is the love that you've lavished on us. How beautiful and magnificent and powerful and good are you. Bigger than the greatest thought you've ever conceived. Purer, grander, more powerful than you could have ever imagined. The second thought I want to give you very quickly is this. Seeing Christ's glory is a miracle of grace. Seeing Christ's glory is a miracle of grace. I would say this morning, in as much as you see his greatness, it's a gift of God's grace because that's not the norm for us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Think about that. Paul says of the devil, he is the God of this age. Satan is is described as the God of this world, and he blinds the minds. There are millions and millions of people in this world that see the name Jesus as nothing more than a cuss word. But I want you to see this, not just pointing to them out there. There are millions of people that will gather every weekend in places like this, and they'll worship in in name only, through singing and standing for the reading of God's word and bowing their heads to pray and they'll listen to sermons but they do not see the glory of Christ. They may say it was great. They may say it was awesome. But they lose sight because they're not saying he is great and he is awesome. Why? Because that's our natural condition. If this morning you have seen even a glimpse of the glory of God, it's because God graced you with that gift. His light shined on himself and you saw it. If your mind and heart are gripped by the greatness and glory of Jesus, remember that it's a gift. It's a miracle. Moses went up on the mountain and he prayed. He asked for it. He said, show me your glory. And that's a great and powerful prayer. Maybe you and I should pray that. Maybe if you're honest with yourself and you say, I'm tired of life as life is, I need to pray and say, God, I want to see you. God, I I know there's more. There's something beyond what I'm experiencing. God, would you show me your glory? And I would say to you, if you have experienced this morning or otherwise, the presence of God and the glory of Christ, would you just simply thank him for that gift and say, God, I want more of that. There are so many things that clamor for our attention, and we ought to be crying out to him that he would give us those very experiences. Number three, I want you to see this. Seeing God's glory changes your life. Seeing his glory changes your life. Again, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and we who with unveiled faces, that means those who behold his glory, are being transformed into his likeness. The way to become more like Jesus is to behold his glory. And that's why authentic worship is transformational. When we come into this place and we worship, it will change us. Why? Because we see him as he is. And how is he? Well, the Bible's pretty clear. He left heaven and came to earth to seek and to save who? The lost. That means that if I become like him, my eyes are going to be open to lostness around me. That means that when I authentically worship, it will drive mission. When I see a restoration of worship in my life, it will drive a life of obedience. That's why when worshiping churches gather, they scatter by missionary means. A worshiping church is a missionary church. Number four. Seeing Christ's glory demands response. Seeing Christ's glory demands response. In our passage, out of the community of God, those that see God's glory and they have a passion for his glory, God will raise up and commission and send out 
those who proclaim his glory. Isaiah saw it. He said, I'm undone, and then Lord, send me. Let me take you to the fifth one. I want to move through because there's one place that I really want to get to this morning before we leave one another's company. Number five, when God restores worship, people will pursue obedience. When God restores worship, people will pursue obedience. Now, I want to I want to really spend a little bit of time here. There's a lot of talk and debate about a, a missionary call. Does God send everybody? Does God call everybody to be a missionary? And some of you are thinking in your minds of things you've heard in the past. How many of you have heard this before at some point in time? You don't have to cross an ocean to be a missionary. You can be a missionary right where you are. How many of you have heard that said before? How many of you believe that? I want to see some of you are like, I, I, I. absolutely all of us are called to, to bear witness to Christ. But I want you to see something that's very important. In, in verse 19, he says, I will send some of them, some of those survivors. We'll talk about what he means about that in a moment. But he says, I will send some. Here's what I believe. There is a specific calling to vocational cross-cultural missions. There is a calling for pastoral ministry. There is a calling to lead worship. And I think it's critical that we make this distinction. Yes, everybody is affirmed at some level that they say, well, I'm a missionary right where I am. Yes, you are to be a witness, but we never should diminish the strength of the calling of God upon lives to cross-cultural missions. Let me say it this way. We'll put it on the screen and make sure you get this. God calls all to serve Him as witnesses, but distinctly calls some people to serve Him as cross-cultural missionaries. Young people, this is where I want you to dial in. And I don't want this just to be a young thing because I, I know I've got a dear friend who sold a very lucrative business when he turned 70 and he moved his family to plant a church out in the Pacific Northwest. He's been a businessman, an engineer all of his life, and he's preaching this morning because God called him to preach there. I, I'm not saying that you have to be young to be called. God calls us, but I want you to hear this. Because I think in churches we've watered this down some. There's a distinct and specific ministry calling that God places on the hearts and lives of some. And there in verse 19 he says that. And some of you will be called to cross cultures and to go to another nation, to learn a new language, and to engage in unreached people. And you will do that because you've seen a glimpse of God's glory. I want you to see if God's stirring in your heart about that, you, you need to think about it. How do you know that you're called? Well, I would start with me. Pastor, how do you know you're called to be a pastor? Well, I would say this. God gave me a strong passion and a hunger for pursuing this work, and it would not let me go. And, and as I began to, to surrender myself to him, he began to affirm that calling in unique ways. And the other side of it is you guys agreed. You guys said, yeah, we'll, we'll let you be our pastor. And you weren't the first church, there were others. South 28th Avenue Baptist Church saw in me gifting and calling, and they licensed me to ministry. And I moved forward from there, and I served as pastor of Derby Baptist Church. And we planted a church with the North American Mission Board in Idaho. And when the committee got together and began praying, they ran across us and called us here. So there's an objective and a subjective sense of calling and confirmation. 
I would say this, if you feel like you're called to be a pastor and nobody has stepped up and said, we want you to be our pastor, there may be a chance that that calling is not there. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way, but there is a subjective and an objective confirmation. But it's this sense of being a missionary. I, I want to do something very quickly. I want to put two guys on the spot that didn't know it. If you, students, are, are at a place where you sense God may be calling you to cross-cultural missions, Joe Gunter, if you wouldn't mind standing up for us. Joe Gunter is our missions pastor. We called him here and invested in leadership to say, we want somebody that's going to guide our response to the global enterprise of God. Students, if you ha- stay standing, if you have a sense of God calling your, uh, you to cross-cultural missions, I want you to spend some time with Pastor Joe. Scott Alexander, if you'll stand up. Scott Alexander is our minister of discipleship and outreach. He has a passion to see people grow in the word. And a response to the word of God leads us to a picture of the glory of God. And it leads us to outreach. That's why we have placed those obligations on them in those areas of leadership. I have phenomenal confidence in these two men, in their heart, in their passion, to see the nations reach for the gospel. Wes, if you wouldn't mind standing up. Dr. Wes Dykes leads our worship here. And again, great confidence in that sense that he would guide us in truth, that we would worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now, I'm not trying to set these men over and apart against any of our other staff uh, or, or otherwise, but this is the pastoral leadership that God's placed here. And their heart beat is to see people respond to the glory of God. And my desire is that you would continually pray for them, but students and all of you, you realize that through our International Mission Board, there's a master's program, and if you're retired, they'll take you. You can go and use your skills cross-culturally. I believe in the coming years, if we see God answer this prayer of restoring our worship, we will see a missional revolution in and through this church like never before. I'm praying that God would send out some of our students that like uh, arrows in the hands of warriors, they would be shot all across the, the world so that they might bring with them those who see and taste the glory of God. You guys may be seated. Thank you for your faithful service. Let me give you just a couple of thoughts about this notion. God says, I will send some, and that might be somebody in here today. I don't know that God might have have brought together a group of students from all over the country and even around the world to hear a message from Isaiah 66 who, who would lead their heart to beat faster for the nations. And they would say, I've seen God's glory, and my desire is to give my life for the rest of my days. Let me give you some thoughts. Number two, I want you to see this. Effective missionaries are worshipers gripped by the glory of God. Effective missionaries are worshipers gripped by the glory of God. So we started out by talking about worship, and then we've transformed that to a place where now we respond in obedience. God places this call. The missionaries God sends comes from those people who have seen Christ's glory. 26 years ago, John Piper wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And in that book, he made an incredible statement. The statement was this, missions exist because worship doesn't. How many of you have ever heard that before? How many of you have ever heard of that book before? Only a handful. We're going to get copies of that in the library. You need to read Let the Nations Be Glad. 
His idea was this. There are millions of people around the world that have not yet seen the glory of Christ, and so they've never worshipped. They don't know how great He is. They don't know how amazing He is. And because of that, we are compelled to go because He's so great to us. I want everybody to know it. Don't you? Has God been good to you? If He has, you want others to know it. But I I began to ponder that statement. And I I was listening to some preachers that were talking about missions and missional living. In fact, it was some of our own missionaries. And one of them made this statement, and it just gripped me. They said this, the converse is true as well. Missions exist because worship exists. Wait a minute, Pastor, I thought you said missions exist because worship doesn't. That's true. Missions exist because we know there are many who do not worship. But look at the driving force. When we have truly worshipped the Lord, God says to us, like he did to Isaiah, who will go? And we'll say, I will. You are so good. I'll go. And so worship drives missions that leads to worship among the nations. Isn't that powerful? What a great picture as we see that. So if we want to experience revival, if we want to experience God, then we begin to see that missions will be driven by worship. Why else would people do that? Why would somebody leave the comfort of their support system here and go to a, a, a native, a, a, an interesting place with with you know the natives are restless, if you will. There's a different language, a different culture, where they where they may have had advanced degrees here in America and they can't even order a loaf of bread or ask where the bathroom is in the country to which they go. Why would they do that? Because they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Because they have seen the glory of Christ. Because they have worshipped. Worship fuels missions that leads to worship among the nations. And you begin to think about this beautiful context. I will send some of those who survive. Isaiah's writing to a group that will be exiled. And they would be exiled to Assyria and Judah. And then Israel's exiled to Babylon. And as we look at those, he begins to talk about those who will survive the exiles. We can apply that more broadly in our own lives. Those Those who are sent have survived the judgment of God through the saving blood of Jesus. And there are hardships that come into their lives. But I would say this, the the Bible says very clearly that there's toughness here and that you're being called to a difficult task. And Paul would tell Timothy that you should endure hardship like a good soldier, that you would run with endurance. Effective servants in ministry and missions will be those who are gripped by the glory of God and those who are survivors of the discipline of God. They've been through hardship. And God has purified their lives. Next, I want you to see this. Unreached and unconverted people are the focus of God's mission. Verse 19, he says, I will send some, those survivors, to the distant lands that have not heard of my fame or yet seen my glory. Notice with me very quickly two descriptions. Two descriptions of people. There are those who have not seen my glory and those who have not yet heard. God sends missionaries, and we should send missionaries to communities where there's no visible church. That's why we plant churches. That's why we invest in church planters, because there are people that have never heard. And some would say this, we trot out statements like this, that, that no person should be able to hear the gospel twice before someone's never heard it once. You heard that statement? I think there's a misconception there. 
How many of you got saved the very first time you heard the gospel? Pretty unlikely. Some of you may have. Some of you may have been drawn magnetically to that. Can I just tell you very quickly that we go to those that are unreached, but we go to those that are unconverted. It doesn't mean that we abandon our work here in Hattiesburg to go to Tanzania. It doesn't mean it's here or there, it's here and there. And our desire is that we would preach the gospel every single day so that the nations could hear and experience the glory of Christ. I need to draw this to a conclusion. I need to just draw it home. And it's not the power of the structure of my sermon, it's the power of the Spirit of God working in your hearts that would speak. I know that there are going to be bands of rain that will come this afternoon, and we want to be sensitive to that. We do want to pray over and commission a team, but can I just say this? As we move to the next slide, Jeremy, if you'll take us to the next one. Proclaiming Christ's glory is the central task of our missionary work. Our desire is that we really would worship in such a way that it would lead us to mission, to obedience. That is revival. There's coming a day, and I love this picture, coming, coming a day where, like the, the opening ceremony of the Olympics, there's one who carries the flag. And, and can you imagine, here's India and Indonesia. Here's the flag for the state of Idaho and Indiana. I just stuck with all the eyes because we've got a lot of partnerships there. But there are people from Africa and Japan. There are people from Senegal in West Africa. There are people from the Middle East. There are people from South and Central America. There are people from all of the Americas. And they trot in into this wonderful stadium picture of all of the redeemed, of all of the ages. And those missionaries, I believe, that shared with them will be carrying the banner, carrying the flag. Because it says there in verse 19 that you will bring them in. I want to wrap this up and simply ask, have you ever tasted of the glory of God? Have you seen a glimpse of His glory? If you have, it will transform your life and take you to a place of immediate transformational obedience. Some of you need to answer a call today. We're going to pray, and here's what we're going to do. Brother West. because of the news, we're getting a little bit of news that we probably, with, with additional um, weather coming in, that, that we want to wrap up. We're not going to do an invitation today. But I'm praying that some of you would just simply stand and say, here am I, Lord, send me. And you would have opportunity to talk to one of our pastors. I don't want to alarm anybody. We just want to be wise and safe. Let me pray for you. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask this very quickly. Miss Lorraine, if you'll come here. Lorraine Miller is leaving later this week toward next weekend. She'll be traveling to another city here in America. And she'll be doing street evangelism and, and sharing the love of Christ with an un. Uh, reached people group and we want to pray for her so if the ordained men of our church would come I also Laura Kaler if we can have any of those that are going to kids camp this week just to stand I, I know many of our kids all of our kids that are going and our adults we want to pray for both of those groups and we're going to be dismissed from this place this way Let's pray together. If you would do something kind of unique, would you just literally reach a hand out in a symbolic way toward Lorraine and just say you're praying and you're agreeing and joining in and praying for her. Father, I thank you for the privilege we have of being a sending church. Thank you that we are a church that is experiencing restored worship that's leading to restored mission. God, we're thankful that we can be the church gathered and the church scattered. Father, that you are moving in powerful ways to reach unengaged, unreached peoples 
from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And God, our worship today is a foretaste of what we'll experience in heaven. Help us to all the more understand that we will one day see face to face in all of your glory. Protect Lorraine, bless her, give her confidence and boldness as she goes. Protect her physically, emotionally, spiritually, and give her victory as she goes in the name of Christ and proclaims good news to the captives. We pray your blessings on her. I pray for our children that will go to camp this week, that you would bless them and that they would hear the gospel very clearly and they would respond to whatever it is you have for them. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's do this very, very quickly. Scott's going to make an announcement. You guys can have a seat. And uh, he will give us instruction about our dismissals.